I would invite you now to uh, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Well, it is Halloween, and uh, therefore it is fitting that we land today on what, for many theologians and preachers, might be the scariest passage in the New Testament to try to preach. And so uh, this morning, as we dive into this text, uh, this may not taste to many of us like candy. This may not be a candy text for some in here. This may be a struggle. This may, for others, taste more like broccoli. Maybe like a, a, a vegetable meal here, which we have to remember is still really good for us. It's something we need to have. It's something that we can grow to enjoy and, and, and value. And so I invite us to turn to God's Word as we, as we walk through Scripture progressively. We don't skip over anything, but we land on a passage like this. We try to approach it faithfully and, and do our best to wrestle through even the hard parts of Scripture. So I would invite you to Hebrews chapter 5, and I will begin reading in verse 11, continuing through chapter 6, verse 12. Stand with me, if you would, as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 5.11 About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt." For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank You that You have brought us here together 
to sing Your praises, to be reminded of Your goodness to us, to, to come and, and, and submit our lives under Your Word. So I pray that You would guide us into this text, a text that has been in many ways discussed and debated over the years, um, different perspectives and opinions on how we, should, how we should receive these things. So I pray that You would give us wisdom and discernment. Let Your Spirit lead us into truth this morning. And I pray that You would use all of us as Your people today, even on a holiday in which darkness is celebrated in some ways, pray that we would be a light in a dark world because we have been shown the light of Jesus. And so I just pray that You would use Your church today in all its different places to lift up and exalt Your name above every evil force and every uh, darkness that is out there. And we ask in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You all have a seat. So as we just dive in here, we need to, we need to recognize, first of all, just to re- be reminded of the context of this passage. The writer has been calling his readers to recognize the significance of Jesus as our great high priest. And he declares the uniqueness of Jesus' role as priest as he introduces this this idea that Jesus is a priest after the order or in the line of Melchizedek, which you may ask, who is that? And we're going to get to him later. The the writer is going to further expound on this obscure Old Testament figure as we get into chapter 7. But before that, he stops almost in this section to give this warning. So this whole section is somewhat of a parenthesis in his full argument. And we've seen some of these warnings over and over as we've walked through this book. In chapter 2, he said, pay close attention lest you drift away. In chapter 3, he said, take care, brothers, lest there be in you a heart of unbelief. In chapter 4, he said, let us strive to enter into that rest so that no one may fall away. And again here, we see another one of these. These warning passages, in many ways, form the backbone of this book and its call for us to persevere in belief. But they also at times can present the reader with some challenging statements. So we need to do our best to dive in and just kind of walk our way through this passage. I think the first thing that we see in in chapter 5, verses 11 to 14 is this. We see that he begins by expressing his concern over spiritual growth. He is concerned for their spiritual growth. And so he tells them this. He says, about this I have much to say. So what does this refer to in verse 11? Specifically, I think it refers right back to his introduction of Melchizedek. But more broadly, he's referring to the implications of Christ as our high priest and and everything about Jesus that he's been trying to explain and and, and tell them about that points to Jesus as, as, as the better and greater fulfillment of all of the Old Testament images and practices. And so he says, hey hey guys, I want to tell you about this Melchizedek figure and I want to tell you more about Jesus, but he said, it's hard to explain it to you. He said, it's hard to explain because of this reason. He says, because you have become dull of hearing. I love this, this, this Greek phrase that's used here. It's kind of a Greek idiom. And if we translate it literally, it would mean lazy of ears. They have lazy ears. And he's, he's confronting them on this presents the idea of, of a neglect or, or just an apathy settling for just a low bar basic understanding of who Jesus is. 
He continues and he says, by this time, meaning they had been Christians for some time at least. He says, at this point, you should be teachers. You should be those who are discipling others, who are investing in others and teaching them these things. But he says, actually, you're just stuck in this cycle and you just need somebody else to teach you over and over again these basic foundational truths. And he gives them this illustration that further explains it. He says, you're acting like those who, who are just living off of milk. You can't take in solid food. We recognize this with, with, with kids and just human development, right? If, if a two or three year old is, is only drinking milk, is only just continuing to nurse, then something, something is, is off. There's, there's, there's something that is stunted. At some point, I won't, I won't take a stand on when you should introduce solids to your kids. I'll let the mamas fight that out. But, uh, uh, at some point, you start introducing solid foods to a baby. So that they can grow, so they can get more and proper nutrients. And he's saying, in this figurative way, you are acting like children in your faith because you're only taking on milk. You just have to have milk given to you over and over. And he describes that, that they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. Meaning that they just have a, have a, have a limited understanding and capacity to, to grasp the, the message about the righteousness of God that's been made known in Jesus. They're deficient in, in really understanding and grasping the heart of, of, of the gospel of Jesus. And in contrast, he says solid food is for the mature. It's for those who, who have their powers of discernment trained to discern good from evil. So what's his, what's his overall point if, if, we're to, if we're just to ask that? He, he is concerned that they have grown apathetic in their faith and they've stopped seeking to grow in their understanding of, of deeper truths about who Jesus is and what He has accomplished. Now, it's important that, that we recognize what He's calling them out, out, out on is not mere intellectual inferiority. It's not that they're just not smart enough to grasp these things. But it's that the orientation of their hearts are not set towards pursuing a richer and a deeper understanding of Jesus. And ultimately grasping how he fulfills all of these Old Testament things, so they're tempted to go back to them. It's not that they can't learn, but that they won't. It's not a lack of intellectual understanding, but their issue is, is rather limited growth in spiritual discernment. They still need the milk of Christian understanding. Now, it's important to say that this, this doesn't in any way minimize the importance of these truths. He says, you, you guys actually need to be taught these things again and again the basic truths of the gospel, what he will later call their foundation, are, are vital and it's so important that they get these things. They have to grasp these realities before they can then go on and take on solid foods, which would be kind of deeper truths of Jesus. And then it's those things that will actually further build and establish their faith and that's where he wants them to head. But they haven't even internalized kind of the basics of the gospel. They're living on just milk as infants. And I think ultimately what he's meaning is that, that they struggle with this. They struggle to actually believe and live in light of the gospel and what it has accomplished for them. And instead, they're tempted to revert back to this mindset of self-salvation. And the reality is, I think that for many of us, we all struggle with that in some way. And we tend towards this way of immature thinking. At times, we fail to believe the gospel and we run back to immature thinking. And that thinking is that, that we are accepted before God based on what we do. How good of a week we've had. How much of our Bible we've read. 
Or we begin to think that, that God has somehow turned against us when we mess up. We, we struggle with believing that our failures are more powerful than the sacrifice of Jesus. We act in immaturity, as one writer said, when we, we redefine the Gospel in light of our failures or our moral successes. So if when you, when you fail, when you fall into that pattern of sin, and you, you just feel like you have to spend days beating yourself up and trying to atone for your sin and feeling guilty enough, and then you, you think that just by your mere effort you can fix yourself, then you're thinking like a baby Christian. You haven't truly grasped the power of the Gospel. Because you have to come to accept and know and act as though you believe that you were never accepted by your works. And you can't change your position before God because of your failures. So he's calling them out, saying, I'm concerned for you. I want you to be mature and grow into this, to fully grasp what Jesus has done for you, that you are forgiven and your sins are covered. Stop wallowing in your shame and your guilt and turning back to your efforts and to what you can do to try to fix yourself. So he first expresses his concern for their spiritual growth. The next thing that he brings up as we move into chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, is that he presents this warning against spiritual laziness. He warns them against spiritual laziness. He moves on from his concern to give them this, this warning. And honestly, this section holds for us some of the most challenging statements for any interpreter to really walk through. And so as, as we work through this passage, at the end of the day, there, there's still, maybe not all your answers are going to be, maybe not all your questions are going to be answered. Things aren't going to always maybe fit nicely into all these different categories that you have. And it may leave some feeling just unsettled in some way. But I'm going to do my best to try to walk us through this passage and see if we can discern what the heart of the writer of Hebrews is actually calling us to. So let's start by just tracking with his reasoning here. He says, first of all, in verse 1, he says, therefore. So he says, because of this concern that I have for you, because I'm worried about you, he says the answer is this. He says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and let's press on to maturity. And the question is, okay, how do we do that? How are we going to do that? He says, first, not by laying again a foundation. Now let's pause and recognize, first of all, again, that the foundation is essential to get them to where they are going, right? If you're going to build a house, you can't just start putting up walls out there. You need a solid and a good, firm foundation. But if you go out and you just pour a slab of concrete, have you built a house? No, you, you actually have to move forward and, and put up the walls, put on the siding, construct the roof, finish it out so you actually have a home that actually, that actually protects and so that's what he's ultimately calling to them too, that they, they can't just keep laying this foundation, but they have to build on it. He wants them to know and be firmly grounded in this elementary doctrine. So when he, when he tells them to leave it, he's not saying, well, just forget about it as if it's unimportant, but he's saying that they need to go deeper into it. And he then defines for us what this foundation is. He says first that it's a foundation of repentance from dead works 
and faith toward God. This is the basic foundational truth of Christianity. That we are saved by repenting of all of our sins and our dead works. All of our attempts to, to gain favor and access to God on our own. We repent of that and we place our faith in God alone to save us. This is Gospel 101. He moves on to describe this foundation also as a foundation of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands, which might strike you as two kind of strange things to include in terms of Christian foundation. So he's talking about washings, which, it, which could be a reference to Christian baptism or I think maybe even more likely a reference to kind of Old Testament ceremonial cleansings that had been continued and, and, and picked up and, and held on in the, in the church, but potentially even the instructions about their baptism as well. The laying on of hands is, is, was kind of this regular practice in the church as an act of blessing, affirming one's confession of faith, commissioning one to ministry, or even identifying you know, a spiritual gifting in, in one. So these, these, these common physical practices that they had been instructed about and learned about were just kind of the basic foundation, but there were deeper, more important truths that they needed to grasp and not just be obsessed with all of these things. These things might have even been causing them to want to go back and adopt even more of the Old Testament rituals. Which is why later he goes on to just continue to tell them that the sacrificial system has been fulfilled. Then the last two things he mentions making up this foundation are instruction about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So he points these things out as, as these foundational, well-established truths that they should already be grounded in and not continually just struggling with. Which at this point, when we, when, we, when we read a text like this, and he says something like, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, does that mean that in some sense we need to move on from the gospel? Because if you've been here long, you will constantly hear us say things like, hey, we, we can't move past the gospel. We, we need to continually be reminded of the gospel. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Is, is that kind of thinking the writer here calling elementary? Is this passage calling us to move on to some kind of deeper doctrine that we just need to become better systematic theologians and gain just better biblical knowledge? And I think I would answer that with no and yes. So no, he, he, he is calling these Christians here not to abandon these things, not as though they're unimportant. He's not telling them just to leave them behind. But he's telling them to move on to deeper understanding. And so we don't move on from the gospel in the sense that we just leave it behind for someone that comes to faith and says, okay, yes, I believe I'm a sinner. I've messed up. You know, Jesus died. I believe. I go to heaven. I, I, get, I, I get out of hell. Great. That's awesome. That's good. Okay, now I'm going to set that on the shelf. I believe that. I've got that taken care of. And now I'm just going to kind of live however I want. It doesn't really matter. So we don't leave the gospel and we don't, we don't leave these things behind in, in, in that sense. And I think another way that sometimes people may move on is that they're like, okay, that's just basic stuff. That's elementary stuff. I need, I need to understand more about the Bible. I just need to gain more knowledge. I need to figure out my ecclesiology and uh, figure out you know, how to speak in tongues or, or wrestle through my, you know, get the end times views as though just mere intellectual knowledge about the Bible and, and deeper theological understanding is the path to maturity. And I don't think he's just calling for that necessarily. 
So we don't move on from the Gospel in those ways, but we move out from the Gospel. We declare over and over and over again in our lives the truth that Jesus' life, His death, and His resurrection is our only ground of confidence to stand before God on the day of judgment. We recognize and we say, yes, I am a sinner. I'm in need of God's grace. But as this passage tells us, we take that milk, that milk of the Gospel, and we let it grow us into maturity to where we learn what it is to feast on the glories of the Gospel in all of its fullness. We learn to begin to marvel at Jesus who stands as our mediator, always providing us access to God as as the writer of Hebrews has been trying to get them to understand and to see this permanent status that they have as God's children. We grow to, to, to believe and internalize the fact that we are justified before God. We have been declared righteous. God's wrath towards us has been turned away and He has made favorable towards us. Our sin and our guilt has been expiated or taken away and removed from us. We grow to see these aspects of the Gospel in their fullness and what that means for us so that positionally we stand holy and declared righteous before God because of Jesus. Which works out into our lives in very practical ways. It's not as though, okay, I just got this ticket to heaven. But we actually have this this fullness of life that has been offered to us where when we believe the implications of the Gospel in our lives, we actually begin to believe that, hey, I I don't have to pretend like I have it all together. I don't have to pretend like, like I never struggle in my life. But the Gospel frees me to be open, to confess my sins with others, and to, and to grow in those things. To be honest about who I actually am and the things inside of me. Because God has actually already declared that I am righteous before Him. As we continue to grow into to the Gospel in this way, it tells us that we don't have to perform. I love how many of the kids even today put on their costumes here this morning. But do you feel like you sometimes have to put on a costume to show up at church? Something that's totally different from what you know most of your life to be. Truly grasping the full implications of the Gospel shows us we don't have to perform and just put on a show so others think of us a certain way because God knows us fully and He still loves us because of Jesus. And this is what it means to to go deeper and leave just the elementary level and and, and get into the heart of, of what Jesus has done and who He is and what He has accomplished for us. So we stand rooted in the Gospel and then we learn to bask in the glories of God's truth in all of His revelation. Just before the writer then gets us really confused here in this next verse, he declares this, he says, this we will do if God permits. So again, he, he brings in this mysterious reality That the work in our lives is something that God does alone that He is doing in our lives and at the same time He calls us to labor and to strive and to run after this kind of maturity. But the writer then tells us why he is so concerned for these Christians. Why is he so concerned that they press on, that they pursue this kind of maturity, that they they get rooted and grounded in the Gospel in a deeper and fuller way? 
He tells them this is why. He says, because it is impossible. It's impossible in the case of those. Let's just stop and and recognize he is about to describe a subset of people. He's about to describe a group of people about which something is impossible. And so this group, let's look at who they are. This group is those who have, in the text, these people have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So they're people characterized by these things, and they fall away. So people characterized by these things and fall away, or, or they turn away or disassociate from. He's, he's talking about apostasy, denying and renouncing their faith. So the question that many have wrestled with is, who is being described here? Who are these, these, these people that are, that are being described, this group? And people have, uh, have, have either cast that, it, that we're either looking at true believers, or ones who appear outwardly to be Christians. So in, in, in seeking to understand who he's talking about, we have to then ultimately be led to ask the question, well, if, it's true, if he's talking about true believers and they fall away, can that happen? And ultimately brings us to this, this, this question of, can a true Christian lose their salvation? And I believe, and I would argue, that the Scripture regularly and consistently and emphatically says no. The reason is because we never gained our salvation, but it was secured for us by God, then we cannot lose it. And if that's true, I think we can see that throughout Scripture. We don't have time to to set forth all that Scripture says on this matter, but I want to just draw your attention to a few passages here. First of all, John 10, 28, where he declares, I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 1 Peter 1.5 So that these are ones who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If we are guarded by God's power, then there is nothing that's going to overcome that. Beautiful passage in Romans 8. I'm not going to necessarily read the whole thing. It's been described as this golden chain of salvation. That those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It goes on to say that He is sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, nothing, anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't believe anybody is losing anything in that passage. In Philippians 1.6, He says that I am sure of this about you, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Last one here. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So if those passages are true, then that leads me to believe 
that this passage in Hebrews chapter 6 is describing in very elevated terms ones who have at least outwardly appeared to be Christians but didn't possess saving faith. I would also further call you to recognize that the language used here is that of experience rather than position. These are people who have experienced life within the Christian community. They've heard the Gospel expounded. They've saw the work of the Spirit in the people of God. They've heard the message of Scripture and at least affirmed it outwardly. They've witnessed the power of God at work within the New Covenant community even in miraculous ways. So, the question we have to ask is, does the Bible give us a category for this type of person? One who from all appearances, who you would, you would absolutely swear is a follower of Jesus, one who at least outwardly appears to be a Christian but does not have a true heart of faith. Is that something that the Bible even begins to present? And I would argue that it does. In 1 John chapter 2, he says this, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. We see and look to Jesus' parable of the seeds. As the sower goes out and spreads seed and it falls on these four soils. We see ones like the rocky soil that refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. It sprouts up and it seems to have true fruit from it initially. But when trouble and persecution comes because of the world, they fall away. Other seed falls among thorns. Someone who hears the word and and takes it in, but yet yet the worries of, of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out, making it unfruitful. Jesus' point is that there's some that, that appear to, to receive it. That it seems from outward appearances to, to be true, and yet it quickly fades away and is shown to not be true. Not to be genuine. We look at one like Judas, one of Jesus' twelve, who walked with Jesus, saw His miracles, heard His teaching, went out with the others and even ministered on behalf of Jesus. And yet, at the end of the day, he turned his back, sold his Savior for a bag of money, and walked away. Matthew chapter 7 gives us a passage in words where it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These may seem like very sobering passages. But I believe that they show us that Scripture reveals to us that there is a type of faith that at the end of the day is not saving faith in Jesus. And that is what I believe this passage is warning against. Now we, now we have to realize and we have to be clear that, that, that none of us have a heart x-ray machine that we can actually determine that in any definitive and objective way in anyone's life. Only God truly knows 
And how far can someone go and walk away from, from Jesus in some sense or, or fall into patterns of sin and, and, and still be a follower of Jesus? I, I don't fully know. But God does. But there's a warning here. The reality is that there is a type of faith that in the end may not be true faith in Jesus. So you may, you may be struck to ask, well, well, how do I know if that's the kind of faith that I have? Because I, I think I'm trying to believe. How do you know? The answer ultimately is you, you fall away. You walk away. You turn in unbelief. Those who fall away at the end, in the end, forever, ultimately show that their faith was not genuine. Because saving faith perseveres. It continues on. It is kept by God. So no, we can't. these believers cannot lose their salvation, but there are those who can act like Christians and not truly possess the saving work of God in their lives. We return now to the statement that something about these people is impossible. So what is impossible about these people? He says it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who fall away. And the reason is because they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. What does this mean now? Is he saying that that if someone who has been in the church leaves and walks away, that they can never come back to God? They are just done. I think there are two ways that this passage could be speaking. Remember, it's a warning. But some have said, that, well, that, well there is, there's a way of turning, and we can't ultimately determine what that looks like, but, but there is a way of turning your back to God where you reach somewhat of a point of no return. Something like Romans chapter 1 in which the heart is so depraved and set against God that it turns completely in defiance and unbelief that God gives them up to their own desires and there really is no hope of repentance. It's one way that some have, have sought to understand this. I think another way is that we have to ask, is this intended as an absolute statement or is the writer possibly employing hyperbolic language for rhetorical effect? And I actually think I kind of lean more in this direction, that he's actually employing hyperbole, saying it, it's rarely going to happen. The way that we, we describe something amazing as, as impossible that it's impossible for someone who, who fully experiences life in the Christian community, who hears the gospel preached week after week, who, who, who knows the truths about Jesus and chooses to turn from it and reject it. Because it's as though, just like the Jews, they are once again holding up Jesus and saying, crucify Him. I want nothing to do with Him. That's the kind of act that that kind of unbelief is. And it is rare, nigh impossible for that person who gets to that point to ever turn back to God. Now God's arms are always open to any sinner who repents, who turns to Him, and God can overcome all forms of human rebellion. But just as Jesus said of the rich man, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So too, for someone who fully experiences the life and the power of the gospel in the Christian community and they turn from it and walk away, how hard is it for that one to come back? And so when we read it in this way, this warning holds out a very stark call to us 
And the call and the warning here is, is don't take this lightly. Don't presume upon God and don't presume that your calloused, unbelieving heart can simply turn back to God when you feel ready for it. When you're done having your fun out in the world, when you're, when you're done just messing around with sin, at the end of your life, you'll just kind of say a prayer and turn to God. Don't presume that that's where your heart will be. But this passage warns against that. And it calls us to think deeply about our own condition, where we are at. Not that we look out and we, we try to discern that in everybody else's life, but the call is for us to discern in our own heart and in our own life. So for kids who are here, who have grown up in a Christian home, coming to church, hearing the Word, don't just think that because your parents are Christians that that automatically applies to you. Has your heart been turned to love Jesus and just the simplest of faith to believe in Jesus that He died for your sins, that He wants to know you as His own? Will you turn your heart personally to Jesus in faith? For others maybe who roll in here every week, roll into church, roll into life group, put on the costume, but yet for the past 10, 15, 20 years, there has been zero growth, zero interest in your life. This warning is held out to you. Not that you have to then just pick it up and, and by your works gain that. That can't be done. But turn your heart again in faith to Jesus and run after Him to pursue maturity, to fully grasp the glory and the beauty of the Gospel that has been given out to you. There's a warning against spiritual laziness. In our last section, verses 9 to 12, and originally, Aaron had uh, kind of set up the calendar, and originally I was supposed to stop right here at this verse. And I told Aaron, I said, hey, I don't think we can stop here. I think, we, I think we need the last four verses of this passage. We can't just leave this hanging right here. We need the end of this passage in which he declares that he is certain of spiritual hope because a passage like this may leave us feeling unsettled. It may for some cause doubt. Maybe you're thinking in here, parents who, maybe it's a child, a friend, a loved one who, who you know used to maybe declare themselves to be a Christian who have walked away. What does that mean for them? Maybe it just almost causes you to doubt in your own life because you know the fickleness of your own heart. Maybe you struggle to, to believe daily that you're saved because of what your life looks like. You know the thoughts that you had this week. You know what you even did. You recognize the deviance and duplicity of your own life. And maybe you struggle to know whether you actually can be saved. The purpose of this passage is not to cause unnecessary doubt and fear in a young believer. It's not merely causing us who are truly saved to doubt or to question, but its ultimately purpose is to call us to press on to maturity so that we have a constant, steady, and anchored faith in Jesus. That we confidently believe the foundational teaching of the Gospel that we can do nothing to save ourselves, but we're saved only by grace through faith in Jesus' atoning death and His resurrected life. 
So we stand confidently in that, but it also calls us to a type of faith, a type of belief that strives to grow deeper into that. And I think as we reach these final verses, it's a reminder and an encouragement of hope to all of us that we equally have to hear and receive. My youngest son, Brecken, over the last uh, few months ago, went through this kind of season in his life where he was just really sensitive to any kind of correction or raising our voice in any way. And, uh, and he, he, would just, he would just break down. Even if it was something that, that, that was good for him, if he was about to touch the stove or, or knock something off, we would say, no, don't do that. And he would just turn and he would just melt. And he would, he would cry because, because we, we, we yelled at him, we warned him. And I'd have, to, I'd have to step down and be like, hey buddy, I'm sorry, sorry I yelled, but hey, I need you to know you can't touch that. I need, need you to know that I care for you. I long for you to grow and to understand how to, how to be safe in our kitchen and in our world. So, so, so I called out to him in a warning, but, but he didn't know how to receive it. I had to comfort him and encourage him to, 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 to know that I, that I love him, that I'm not coming after him out of anger. I want him to, to receive that warning in the right way. And I think this last section is in many ways the writer's attempt to, to stop and reach down and, and, and hug his reader saying, hey, I love you. I care for you. I, I speak these harsh words for your good so that you'll receive these things. You'll recognize them. You'll take them seriously because what at stake is your eternal destiny. And so he tells them this. He says, although we speak in this way, although I, I have just leveled this sobering and weighty warning against you, he offers them these words of hope. He says, in your case, beloved. The only time he uses this, this word in the book, this word beloved, his dear, loved friends. He says, in your case, we feel sure of better things. We are certain that this is not going to be true in your life. We are sure that of better things, things that belong are characterized by, by salvation, by a life truly transformed. He says, I know that God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love you've shown for Him. God sees the fruit that is borne out in your life and it testifies to your genuine transformation of heart. So He encourages them. It says, my desire is, to show you the, is that you would continue to show the same earnestness the same love of Jesus, the same passion that you first had when you came to, to see the glory of the Gospel, when you were first saved, that that same earnestness would continue to, to characterize your life, that you would grow into that. And ultimately, so that through that, you would have full assurance of hope until the end. Not just today, not just for this week, but until the end, that as you look in your life, as we look in the community, that we see the work of God and the fruit of the Spirit borne out in our lives time and time again, even amidst all our failures and our struggles and our doubts, and that that would point us and call us to just have this confident, steadfast hope that the Gospel offers. And ultimately, so that they wouldn't be sluggish. They wouldn't be lazy, wouldn't put their Bible on their shelf and just not care about it, but that they would be imitators. They would follow after those who have gone before, those who entrusted the gospel to them, who discipled them, that they would become imitators of them, the ones who have gone before, who evidenced a life of faith and patience as those who inherit the promises of God. 
There's no two greater words, I think, to define what perseverance is. It's just steady faith and patience. That's what we're called to. Faith in the Gospel and the work of Jesus Christ and patience that God will continue to do that work in, in us as we continue to press on in that belief. You guys have all done great hanging with me here. Kids, good job. Have just couple final thoughts here for us. I have a desire, a hope, and a prayer for us as a people. My desire is that the concern of this passage would go out to those of us who are still surviving on milk, who are walking in immature thinking, not truly finding the freedom to trust in the gospel, those constantly wondering if their failures are beyond the saving work of God those who are constantly doubting if they can be saved. The call is to grow up, believe and rest in the full assurance that you are saved eternally. You are being kept by God's power and not your efforts. I hope that the warning of this passage lands on those of us who are hardened to Jesus, who have grown apathetic in their faith, who are trusting in some mere profession made years ago at a VBS or a Bible camp, and there's been zero growth in your life, be careful. Be warned. Don't be the rocky soil. Don't be the thorny path. Turn your heart again and again to Jesus and press on to maturity. And finally, I pray that the hope of this passage will land on all of us. We feel sure of better things for this church, for God's people, that He is at work and that work He started in us, He will finish and He will bring to completion. I pray that we would all have that assurance of hope until the end as those who through faith and patience live as though we are sure that we will inherit the promises of God. Let's pray this God who holds us. Father, I thank You for this text amidst all the challenges and complexities that it may hold, further questions it may lead us to. I thank You for just the, the honest warning to us. The last thing we want to do is walk around our whole lives believing that we're Yours when we're really just trusting in ourselves. I pray that You would give us confidence in the Gospel that we would not keep turning back to self-salvation, but let us rest in what You have done. Let us not be apathetic and lazy in how we hear and learn from You and Your Word in our lives. And give us a hope. A hope that amidst a dark world, amidst all the challenges and the, the, the things that we face every day and every week, that will hold us fast and firm until the end. And we anticipate the fulfillment of the promises that are held up, out to us. So we declare these things in, in, in faith and in certainty because Your Word is true. So we ask this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.